0: Make Real specialises in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereal.co.uk slash activists.
1: Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark internationally famous author, blogger, and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore 2,500 years of thought and theorizing about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This episode features a group of people who are not writers, philosophers, psychologists, or learning theorists in any usual sense of the term. Nevertheless, their influence on learning has been profound and long-lasting. They were the religious leaders who founded four of the world's greatest faith traditions.
0: Welcome to this episode of Great Minds on Learning about religious leaders. Donald, you know, I yield to your greater erudition in all matters of the intellect, and I've been happy in this series to be the Watson to your Holmes, the Boswell to your Johnson. But so far as this particular episode goes, I must confess, I feel a bit more like Sancho Panza to your Don Quixote. Because I think it might be a quixotic endeavor that we're engaged in here. It's hard, it seems to me, to look at the thought of a religious leader without seeing it through the prism of their followers and tradition. And that tradition is in all cases divided, splintered, diverse, and to varying degrees antagonistic. In all the great religions, you see the same pattern. You'll have your fundamentalists, your charismatics, your evangelicals, your militants, your quietists. You're mystics, since religion always has some sort of commerce with the uncanny, and it's pretty difficult to see through all that to focus on the real character and thought of a historical figure who has a coherent body of thought and ideas about learning. Tell me, I'm wrong?
2: Well, that's right. It's a complex arena here. I was. This is not a. This wasn't set up for those people who are listening. But I like. I like your Sherlock Holmes to Watson comparison there only because my father has come down from Scotland and uh, he told me that he's one of these Scottish guys who are full of stories. And he only just told me, he's 87 years old, that his uncle was was Conan Doyle's gardener in Edinburgh. But the curious thing is, my father's uncle was called Tommy Watson. So I'm going to look this up just to see if it's possible that my... uh, my great, great, great uncle or whatever was, maybe the the spark for Watson and the Sherlock Holmes stories. Anyway, that was a uh, a rather odd tangent. Coming back back to your question there, I think the interesting thing about this particular podcast, looking at religious leaders, and in particular we're gonna be looking at Confucius, the Buddha, Jesus, Mohammed, is how much more influential they are even now than many people think. And of course they have been influential for two and a half millennia. There's it's hard to imagine a group that have had more influence on culture globally, but in particular learning, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And I think I've just uh, uh finished a book that we published out next year called On Learning Technologies. And one of the chapters in that book is about writing as the first big bang in learning technology. Because I think these thinkers also have to be seen in a cultural context of the technology that allowed the proselytizing of their thoughts. And that really came through, of course, the early codexes of the Bible and Confucius' Confucian Analects, his four books, Buddhist text, of course, even in Hinduism, things like the Vedas, and also, of course, Muhammad and the Quran. But not only writing, but print then, of course, had this massive effect. It's one of those things that have been carried forward on a wave of technology to have global influence, the religions of the book, as it were. Uh, literally that, which meant they played not only a role in terms of content, moral teaching and so on, as we'll come to that, but also, I think, in terms of actually pedagogic techniques like Jesus and parables and sermons, for example, or Muhammad on recitation and memorization. There are also some interesting angles here that uh, one would hope we'll uncover over the next hour, John.
0: I'm partially convinced.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's make that wholly convinced. (laughs)
0: Okay, so let's start with Confucius, Uh, 551 to 479 BCE, before the Christian era. Born in what is now Shandong province of China, son of the commandant of a local garrison. He could trace ancestry back to the Shang dynasty, so had a kind of a noble past, but he himself was raised in poverty and educated at schools for commoners. And people record, according to Wikipedia, that he is what we, we would call middle class, sort of sandwiched between the aristocracy and the, the, the workers, although obviously that's not strictly equivalent going back that far. His father died when he was three, mother when he was 23. And th- th- this seems to be a pattern, early death, just comes up, uh, appearance, just comes up again and again in Biographies in, of Great People. Worked in various government jobs and later through the reputation he had gained as a result of his teachings. He rose to become governor of a town and eventually minister of crime. I suppose Home Secretary um, would be our equivalent. So yeah. very much a man of the world with, um, with a political career, you know, not, not a kind of ascetic. When that came to an end, his political career, he began a long journey or set of journeys around Northeast and Central China, Expounding his political ideas, but not actually getting much uptake for them. At the age of 68, he returned home to his native Lou to spend his last years teaching. He had 70 years old disciples and transmitting the old wisdom via a set of texts called the Five Classics. Died at 72 from natural causes. Donald, this extraordinary and influential figure who's roughly contemporaneous, I suppose, with Pythagoras and the pre-Socratic yeah. Greek philosophers and can seem more of a philosopher than a religious lead to us, what does he have to tell us about learning?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting comparison with Pythagoras because he, he did have a sort of cult, a, a school, as it were, and that's, uh, that was the, the kernel from which all of this came. But, you know, it's really hard to underestimate, uh, you know, the... Uh, the influence that Confucius has on, you know, we've just passed 8 billion people on our planet. 1.4 billion of those eight are Chinese, and all of them have been touched by Confucianism. So I've been to China, and I've actually uh, did some teaching, kind of education-type teaching there, and uh, I also, interestingly, went into some schools when I was there. And it's very different. You almost see Confucianism within seconds of walking into a school. You know, there's the deference... There is the kids sleeping in the afternoon, you know, the whole process thing. There is the whole examination system. There is less of that, you know, individualism one might get in Europe or America, the sort of bouncing critical thought, answering questions, asking you difficult questions. It's alive and kicking. Confucius is is possibly more influential now than he was in the 6th century, uh, straddling uh, into the uh, 5th century when he was alive. Now, but let's go back because, you know, what's really important about Confucius is this massive influence in that part of the world. Don't, let's not underestimate this, but largely through text. So go back to that notion of the, the printed world, the Chinese inventing early printing, uh, but it really coming alive in Europe much, much later and his famous text, The Analects. Now, The Analects is a really interesting book. You can get it in Penguin paperback, and it really is worth a read if you are at all interested in education. Now, we have Confucius down as a religious leader here, and he's not really a religious leader in the sense that Muhammad or Jesus might be. So Confucius wasn't really a religious leader as such. But he certainly had religious beliefs, that's the important thing, because there's this huge moral strand that comes through and that's his influence is perhaps more of moral teaching than any sort of content. But he certainly had a lot of very sort of moral type prescriptions. And they, those were around things that are, far from being progressive or Western in any sense, you know, people who teach and work in China are often uh, surprised by the deference, the, the sort of deferential respect for hierarchy. Uh, for even allowing elites to control society in a sense, Uh, respect for authority, your parents, ritual even, he was big on ritual. But above all learning, the interesting thing about the analytics is how much there is on learning and the importance of learning, learning how to become a member of society, how to become a useful member of your own family, how to become a member of the state. And this communal, Societal view of the world is very strongly Confucian and alive and kicking in China today. So he's not a progressive, he wouldn't be regarded as a progressive thinker in learning theory uh, because he promotes the status quo, basically. But I, I mean, that's not to say he didn't have sophisticated pedagogy because he isn't a believer in passive learning. There's actually quite a lot in the, anal- uh, uh, in the Analects about active learning. But he did see students as active learners with a massive amount of respect for teachers. That's the difference here. And manners and decorum. All these things matter in the the Confucian system, which you can witness if you go to China. We had a very interesting trip to the Shaolin uh, Monastery in the center of China because both of my boys did Taekwondo to quite a senior level. And uh, that was an amazing thing. 10,000 young kids out in silks. Practicing martial arts, that they were being trained in that context, you know, trained very seriously for uh, work in the state, for all sorts of things in the army, bodyguards, and so on and so forth. So that was it's it's a fascinating thing to go there and see Confucianism living and breathing, as it were.
0: Well, so I mean, it, it's interesting that um, learning is kind of at the centre, really at the centre of of. of, of what he's preaching. When you say that he he was religious, is it that there was an existing religion that he was uh, subscribing to, or, or or did he did he kind of change uh, the, the the religion that he'd come into in the way that some of these other religious leaders did?
2: Yeah. Well, what's interesting about China, this is true everywhere, is that religions are very rarely things in themselves, you know, that suddenly our religion springs and gets dominance or hegemony mm-hmm. totally and utterly. So you have Buddhism in China. So the Shaolin Monastery, all martial arts, interesting, in the whole world come from Buddhism, from that one place in the center of China. So Buddhism, around the same time, remember the Buddhists are all, that was contemporaneous with uh, Confucius. You also have other strands like Taoism, Dao, uh, meaning the way, which is really fascinating, very sophisticated conceptual schema around religion. So there are many, many other strands. And it was more as a pluralistic, a, a, you know, there is no sort of Godhead here. You know, Confucius is not Jesus or Muhammad. He's not speaking on behalf of God. There's no high end metaphysics here. But his, you still get Confucian temples in China. You can go and visit those. The, the, focus on ritual, the focus on ancestors, respect, and so on, is very much built in, built on a, a religious platform, a moral platform that is not man-made, but is given an objective. So that's that's really what it, what it is. Very different concept of religion from that we experience in the
0: West. And really, I suppose in educational terms, quite a conservative figure in what he says then.
2: Absolutely. And uh, that's what you witness when you go to China. Nevertheless, there were some really, what you might regard as hugely progressive features of Confucius. And one is the, the whole notion of these examinations that people had to sit. So mm-hmm. uh, the first two books of the Analects are all it's full of these aphorisms about teaching and learning as opposed to anything that's wholly sort of founded or rounded in a sense. But what characterizes his theory, what came out of it, were these massive exams that came much later in China and the concept of a meritocracy, in other words, the, exam, the examination system that uh, Confucius, and that was still alive until, I think, 1905. So you've got a system that tens of millions of people were taking and still do take. And in those days, if you were found cheating, you could be put to death. Mm-hmm. There, were, there was serious evaluation and independent inspectors. And indeed, the stats show that, you know, ordinary working class sort of people in China rose to very high positions in the civil service in China in a way that they never and still don't in the West. So the concept of meritocracy was, and playing your role in the state, but being the best to your ability was quite a progressive idea. Uh, uh, On the other hand, there's this instrumentalist side to all of this as well. The purpose of education is not the enlightenment of the individual. That's by and large how we see it, education in the West. Okay, more... point. <laughs> yeah. it's,
0: kind of, it's kind of changed. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's true. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, but for him it was you know playing a role in society. It was a collective view. Now something really interesting happens in China, of course, because many cultural analysts have looked at this and wondered why Mao. So Mao comes in 1949. You have the Cultural Revolution, where students, literally students, were murdering their professors and teachers, and so you literally had an intellectual class that were uh, a sort of genocide of sorts uh, in the educational stratum. This puzzled a lot of people in many ways. Why would one do that? Because it comes out of Marxist Leninism. This whole separation, you know, uh, uh, if you're slicing and dicing groups, one side because of dialectical materialism, wants to get rid of the other. And that's an evil and has been shown to be an evil. Nevertheless, in uh, in Maoism, you had this particular focus on teachers and university-level tertiary education people. Uh, it comes right out of a little red book where young people are literally murdering them. Some argue that there was some Confucianism in this. It was Confucianism under another guise, as it were. You know, and I was the state or party is all powerful and any one group within that can be seen as a threat. But then if you look at China now, in a sense, neo, Neo-Confucianism came back as well. So, that you know, there was it, it wasn't just, uh, you know, it wasn't just one thing over two and a half millennia. Neo-Confucianism <laughs> was much more liberal in terms of the role of the individual, much more modern in terms of educational techniques and so on but you still have the academic assessment, you still have the gaokao exams, these massive millions of people taking the exam, same exam on on the same day. But in modern-day communist capitalism, the Confucius model, going back to almost a platonic model of having respect for an elite that takes care of everything, education is the goal, but the goal is the support of the collective and state. That is as strong now as it ever was in China. So there are some individual pedagogies he introduces but also has a philosophy of education that still shapes uh, the Chinese education and of course foreign students who come to British universities, you see those behavioural traits in them as well.
0: So kids, if uh, you're, you're fretting at the fact you have to take these mass exams every summer, um, possibly Confucius is the person to blame. <laughs> Buddha, 6th and 5th century BCE, better known in the West perhaps than Confucius, certainly by the boomers who followed the hippie trail and found his, his the most congenial of the great religions. Uh, but an interest in Buddhism goes back much further than that in Western cultural life and thought, probably back to blah, 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 around the Enlightenment. Born in the earliest period in Indian history for which significant accounts exist in what is present day Nepal, Siddhartha Gautama. Most commonly referred to as the Buddha, was a wandering ascetic and religious teacher who lived in South Asia during the sixth or fifth century and founded Buddhism. Scholars have mostly given up, it seems, on trying to understand the historical person through the myth. But most accept that the Buddha lived, taught and founded a monastic order. That much seems to be provable. So we just have the stories, but the stories are beautiful. Jorge Luis Borges uh, tells much better than I ever could the tale of a young prince whose birth it had been predicted. He was destined to become a great king or a great religious leader. Guess which of those his father wanted, Um, having no doubt at all of which those he preferred. He shielded the growing lad from all knowledge of human suffering, uh, locked him up in the palace. The Buddha saw an old man, which sparked curiosity, a phenomenon that those who watch great minds are learning on YouTube will be familiar with. You see two old men talking about learning theory, (laughs) <laughs> it leads to enlightenment. The Buddha then saw a sick man after that, a corpse, and an ascetic holy man, the four sights, these are called, and the scales fell from his eyes. Renouncing his Instagram perfect ex- existence in the palace, he became a wandering ascetic, achieved enlightenment, and founded a great religion. Donald, I'm mindful of the fact he was a teacher, but other than that, what did he contribute to the development of learning?
2: Yeah, so again, if we try and uh... Put this in context: about seven percent of the world are uh, pro- proclaim themselves as Buddhists, and so if you've uh, so I've, I've travelled in Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and so on, you you find that Buddhism is everywhere, and you literally see its manifestation as monks, temples. They're everywhere, and so in, in countries like China, Japan, Thailand, uh, Myanmar, South Korea, even India, Malaysia, Vietnam, and so on, Cambodia, the Buddhist Buddhist culture has had and still does have a massive influence on education, but what is it then? What does the what, what is the Buddha as a teacher almost? And you picked up on the right word there. So you have to focus on this word enlightenment. And the Buddha himself, in a sense, hesitated to teach anything. You know, it, it's not like the Western tradition where you have Jesus uh, or Muhammad laying down uh, parable stories and telling you what the game is here. This is a moral code which you will follow. The Buddha, in a sense, does the very opposite. He almost says nothing. It's about stilling the mind. Far from allowing the mind to run away with itself in verbiage or critical thinking, the whole point here is to still desire. It's not to say that you should not be learning things, but it's a very different view of education. And the monastic view of Buddhism, which was very specific in in specific areas in in the Far East, became very, very powerful today. And if you go to somewhere like Thailand today, you'll commonly see Buddhist monks, young Buddhist monks everywhere, because it's built into the schooling system. But the Buddha himself says some quite interesting things about, about learning it. There are parables interesting. The field, the lotus is used as a metaphorical device a lot of the time. There's a lot of storytelling in Buddhism, which are sort of moral tales, but quite subtle compared to the hardcore, uh, love and compassion stories one gets in the, in the New Testament, for example. You know, there's a lot of subtlety in this because it is about stilling. It's not about sort of critical ramming moral messages down your throat, as it were. So it's not been a, a massive, direct, obvious pedagogical influence, but a very subtle and very interesting influence, I think. The Buddha was disinclined to teach. That's not to say that teaching doesn't take place or learning doesn't take place. It just takes place in a different sort of way. So you still have those big religious themes like generosity, you know, self-sacrifice, uh, you know, uh, being humble, and so on. But there's a, uh, also like Confucianism a really strong belief in cooperation and uh, and a general feeling of oneness. That's not just society; it's more of a metaphysical concept, of course. Uh, in direct opposition, and this is what's interesting about both Confucianism and Buddhism, in direct opposition to the Western individualistic view of life, okay? So it's not a a matter of filling the mind with knowledge, pouring stuff in there and hoping for the best, but a stilling of the mind and allowing the mind to become an autonomous entity that decides on its path forward. And you have all this noble eightfold path type stuff where it's really a moral code about, you know, having the right view, right thoughts, right speech, right contact. There are a lot of rules in Buddhism that are subtle, but nevertheless make it a very special place when you go there. You can feel it on the street almost. And that's partly because of the educational system has baked Buddhism into the cake. That sort of stirring gentleness you find in Buddhist countries, which I really admire and always enjoy going there. So to become a, a monk or a nun when you're young in those countries is an admirable thing. Many families wish that upon their children uh, in Southeast Asia. And it's obvious when you go there, it's not an alternative to schooling, it's just another form of schooling. This is different from Zen Buddhism, interestingly, in in Japan, for example. The monastic tradition wasn't taken up by Zen Buddhism, and Zen Buddhism is much more of a koans, or these stories and dialogues. It's about speaking in dialogue towards enlightenment with a master. That's much more of a teacher-pupil relationship, but again, incredibly subtle. It's not about, you know, blasting out knowledge or giving a lecture in any sense. Very much about dialogue and the uncovering of truths in a Socratic manner almost within the individual.
0: Yes, you reminded me there of of Socrates. And there is a Greek word which I've forgotten, which is um, through the questioning process with Socrates Socrates described in Plato. You arrive at a kind of state of confusion with questions that don't seem to be answerable. Is it aporia or...
2: Yeah, that's right. That's a, I don't know the Greek term, I've forgotten what that is, but the, you're right, the, with Socrates in particular, there was that notion of ignorance is the wrong word. People use that in relation to, It's not a state of ignorance that you rely, rely on. It's simply a state of almost enlightenment that you actually don't know as much as you thought you knew.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this reminds me of the kind of Zen Buddhist thing of of, of, of the little stories like the one hand clapping that, you, you know, you kind of, you have to contemplate on something that you know does it certainly doesn't have an easy answer but I was going to say that you know the, the Buddhism's greatest hit in the West most recently of course um is mindfulness mindfulness <laughs> which it, you, know, you laugh Donald but I, I have a brother who's a, a mindfulness counselor and he's done some some great work um on behalf of uh the NHS uh help helping people through addiction and, and so with mindfulness So I myself have done a bit of mindfulness I, I have to say i think it's something that is really good and really helpful um obviously there's a lot of bullshit around it like everything else but it in an odd way it's been kind of stripped of the religion and the yes. marxist <laughs> critic of Slavo, can never pronounce his name Slavoj lizak
2: yeah
0: um has a, a very interesting kind of denunciation of uh mindfulness on 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 YouTube that you can look up and he, he he mentions the way that the religion has been stripped out of it but somehow still there's a kernel of Buddhism which he doesn't like um still in there and and he, he almost suggests it's a kind of stealth agenda on behalf of Buddhism to get into Western <laughs> woke capitalism which is I think yeah. is an interesting. Concept.
2: well and with our Slovenian philosopher friend uh, on that one really I think you're right. I mean, there, there could be no doubt that, uh, you know, a calming of the mind uh, uh, and trying to avoid negative thoughts and CBT therapy and mindfulness can be useful in a therapeutic context. But what happened when L&D got a hold of it was starting to slab it out, you know, in a rather cliched manner in the workplace. And there's very little evidence that this actually works. In fact, more recently, there's been a lot of evidence of, about that some of the harm it can do to people. And was as soon as you start pe- making people incredibly self-aware of that were perfectly normal in their heads, but suddenly turning into deficits or, or, you know, or mental health issues, then it, it's been shown to be quite negative, have quite a negative effect on some people, quite dangerous in the wrong hands, and that's what happened with LD. We suddenly had mass courses on mindfulness, you know, whole conferences on mindfulness, and I think it's right. Yeah, I think that notion of turning it into some weird, secular, dogmatic, supposedly piece of science, when actually it isn't, is the is the real danger here. So these fads arise. And of course, mindfulness has had its day. It's been ages since I even heard the word mentioned because it comes and goes, these fads.
0: Still massively popular in, in a lot of quarters. So how would you sum up the, the, the contribution to learning of, of Buddhism then? You, you, well, you let, mentioned that it's a yeah. bit similar to... Uh, the Socratic tradition in Zen Buddhism, but the the kind of mainstream of Buddhism?
2: Well, less than Confucius in China, and a lot less than either the Christian or Jesus, let's say, uh, in Western tradition, uh, as we will see when we discuss Jesus, and less than Muhammad, because these people had a direct, causal, global influence on education itself, uh, that was very identifiable. I think the Buddhist tradition is much subtler, but nevertheless, at seven percent of the world's population, still incredibly popular and powerful in those regions. And uh, who's to deny that Japanese culture has not uh, has been successful, whether uh, in the context of modern capitalism? Or the context of culture, so I think ignoring it or putting it to one side is a big mistake. We have a lot. I think we have. I think one of the things I learned when looking at these figures in detail is how much we have to learn from other religious cultures about learning. Hmm. And there's a lot to learn from the Confucian culture, as I say. My sons did a martial art called Taekwondo that came out of Korea originally, but also China, and. It's more than a sport, you know, it has the five tenets of Taekwondo that were moral codes and it's affected their lives in a very positive and beneficial way. So I think we have lots, and mindfulness as well, I would add to that list. I think we have a lot to learn from Buddhism, Confucianism, uh, this idea that we have it cracked in the West and that this individualistic idea of the world, uh, it it can be all consuming and and misleading. So hopefully out of this podcast, we can get some cross-pollination going.
0: Now we come a bit closer to home um, yes. next we come to the religious leader whose hegemonic status means that we have to date all the others with reference to him. Uh, but as you'll notice from his dates, um, 77 to two BC, he was born to 30 to perhaps 36 AD. Now uh, we look at the first of those two sets of dates. You'll notice he probably wasn't even born in the year that everybody has to date um, <laughs> themselves from, you know, Go figure. Nonetheless, at the time of recording, we're coming up to the day when in our part of the world, we celebrate his birthday with an orgy of mass consumption and a much needed period of rest for overworked podcasters, hopefully. Few scholars now question that Jesus actually existed, but getting a good picture of who he actually was is hard, given that there are so many versions of him. I could ask you, Donald, which Jesus you're going to give us here. The radical insurrectionist left winger portrayed by Dennis Potter for the BBC, notably in the seventies, the fey androgynous version from Renaissance art, uh, the elongated ones of El Greco, the gentle Jesus meek and mild from Victorian children's book illustrations, or the Christ militant who brings a sword for the enemies of Christendom, or perhaps the slightly unimaginable deity whose example animates members of the Westboro Baptist Church. The Jesus of Liberation Theology, or the Jesus of the Inquisition, I'm conscious of the fact that you and I were raised in two very different and occasionally bitterly opposed traditions of Christianity. You having been raised a Calvinist, and I a Roman Catholic. In fact, whenever I speak the name Jesus, there, there is something in the back of my spinal cord that makes me want to nod my head. I can't walk across the chancellor of a church without the urge to to genuflect although you know religion has long gone away from me it's still there in the muscles and 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 the bones so it's interesting to reflect how for other people in the world for Buddhists and um uh Mohammedans uh those physical things are there but they're not for me but they they are with this one which is probably why um Doing so much slagging on. <laughs> so, despite you having been raised a Calvinist and I a Roman Catholic, we are nevertheless on speaking terms, luckily for this podcast, Donald. But, but Jesus, few, so much to answer for. What can Jesus tell us about learning?
2: Well, that's right. It was an interesting introduction there, John. You, you're right. We were born, I was born in a very sort of, you know, sectarian environment, really. You know, I never really had any contact with any Catholics, even in the same town as me, because they all went to an entirely different school. And that's, that sectarianism is still alive and kicking in Scotland today. Mm. You go along to a Ranger Celtic match and you'll see 50, 70, 80,000 people screaming blue murder at each other on that basis. And it's horrible. Uh, and it's also, of course, gave us a 30-year war in Northern Ireland very, very recently. So mm. let's not underestimate the schisms here, but we're going to concentrate on learning. And you're right, I have the same feeling, even though I come from the Calvinist side, John, I was recently going around some you know, all these parish churches, Saxon churches in Sussex, and when you walk over the threshold, even I, as a good old Scottish Calvinist, still felt I had to speak softly or silently, you know, a sense of reverence and so on. So it's still deep in all of our, in, in Western culture. But in terms of learning, to cut to the quick on that one here, We have in Jesus something incredibly powerful and different from the Buddha and Confucius, that notion of direct instruction or teaching. All these powerful parables and sermons, you know, really come through the apostles, really, in the the New Testament. But parables and sermons are the two big pedagogic techniques. And if you don't think they've had an influence, then walk into any lecture theater in any university, have a look at the lectern, the lectern, And uh, you can see, uh, compare that to any small parish church where you will also find a pulpit and a lectern and seats like pews, just as you would find in a lecture theatre. We copied that model whole scale. It's what Illich said, that really uh, modern schooling, post-Reformation schooling, is really Calvinism. It's really Christian in its model, and that model was preaching. Okay, So post-Reformation, that's when the pulpits Arise! Everyone came out of the chancel uh, into a congregation who sat there while somebody spoke and told them what things were really about, morally and otherwise. Nevertheless, one of the other aspects, so we have parables and we have sermons, but we also have a sense of inclusion. And as Jesus comes along, you know, it's a massively inclusive view of the world. The weak, the poor were part of this as well, which is why the Reformation really did lead to mass schooling. It was important that everyone was brought into the educational fold here. And then on top of that, that, this layer of love, kindness, forgiveness, and so on. These are these are terribly important things, and easy to mock in a sense, but good things, you know, even for people like me who are sec- secular. But we have much to learn from Jesus about how things actually work in teaching. So let's start with the parables one first, because that's perhaps his most powerful pedagogic technique. The pedagogic parable, let's call, call that one there. And that's really storytelling. You know, a powerful short story with people you can, something you will remember. Remember throughout this whole period, most people were illiterate. If you step into a Saxon church, uh, you know, eighth, ninth century, even medieval times, you'll find that the churches were a riot of color with paintings on all four walls from bottom to ceiling. And that was because people could not read uh, until the Reformation comes along and get mass literacy. The parable, this image-rich, is allowing the reader to imagine in their own minds an event, almost like episodic memory, a little video almost, TikTok thing, uh, that you could recall from memory at a later date to guide moral action. This was important, especially for the illiterate poor. And of course, Christian art is full of those images and stories, uh, you know, that's that the art itself played that role. I think the parable is a key pedagogic issue that we get from the tradition of the New Testament, St. Paul especially. And the second one is the sermon. So you have the famous Sermon on the Mount. Sermons, of course, were to become the the pedagogic weapon of preachers, and who would deny that in some context teachers are preachers (laughs) in these days. That's the model standing in front of a class and preaching at them. That's what most direct instruction it was and still is. I would I would say the lecture is preaching is teaching. Almost certainly, it's not really about critical thinking. You know, you're sitting there as a passive listener for an, a full hour, just like a long sermon. Uh, the proselytizing sermon is a fundamental pedagogic technique in Christianity, and it comes because it's in the New Testament. You know, so you can draw the direct uh, parallel here. You no know, the lectern, hmm. which means a reading desk in the days when people didn't have books and you had to speak out or read the book to them, the word lecture from the 14th century, that shifts to be away from talk about teaching to really to, to a sort of direct instruction. To lecture means talk about a specific topic to a bunch of learners. So that happens about the 16th century. So the verb to lecture, I think it was about 1590 when that word in its modern sense first springs up. Out of just reading out of religious context. So we go from pre-print to print technology in the 16th century. We have the Reformation, where everybody goes to school. And they go to school, interestingly, so that they can read Scripture, (laughs) Not, not to learn other things. The whole point of most of this, whether it be in the Catholic tradition through Ignatius or the Calvinist Lutherian traditions, this was to learn more about God and scripture, and then other things come in its wake, a rise of literacy, printing the whole thing, the genie is out the bottle then. But our schools and universities are still today, in the West, shaped by this. But here's the rub, an interesting thing, what its influence is much more global because the university system that arises out of Bologna and Padua and Oxford, Paris, uh, very early in medieval times, has now dominated the whole world. You know, the whole Prussian system of degrees, MA, MSEs, PhDs, uh, mortarboards on head, that whole thing, the whole structure of the secular model of universities, which comes out of that tradition uh, uh, tradition in Europe, spreads across to the US, is now a global phenomenon. The world has copied that model. So it has had an immense pedagogic influence globally, mm-hmm. absolutely immense,
0: and of course if you go to one of our ancient universities you'll find cloisters mm. yes well, they, you know, they, it's yeah. a you know it,
2: it, it's not uncommon uh, i mean Peter field describes higher education in particular as as a sort of catholic religion just before the just before the reformation you know they're handing out bits of paper for vast sums of money in the hope that you'll get salvation and employment <laughs> if you know yeah. it, you're doomed you're doomed to the hell of trades yeah <laughs> educational I, learning yeah.
0: I'd have to point out with atavistic resentment, of course, you couldn't go to one of our old universities if you were a Catholic up until you know, the yes. middle of the 19th century or whatever, And John Henry Newman and so on. Um, I, I was really impressed by what you've just said, Donna, when I first read this in your blog, the the, the, the the way you talk about the parable and the sermon and, and it set me thinking about how pervasive these have been. I mean, if you, you you, you kind of look at a, a learning blog, on uh linkedin now you know something w- that we read every day they're very similar to kind of sermons vicar yeah. sermons and, and the kind of tiring thing about the vicar sermon which you, you would hear in kind of thought for the day on day prayer every morning is that there'll be a topical issue um uh, I, I don't know what you know the uh women win the, the, the football world cup or something like that and then uh, a, a vicar will come on and he'll talk about that for a bit and somehow meant manage to bend it around to religion yeah um, and, and that form of a sermon you also find that with training blogs that, that you know there's a topical issue or, or, or a great big something like the skills crisis you know uh, and and the blogger will sort of talking about that and somehow bend it round to his you kind know, of particular sort of um in, in, in learning and training they really are very deeply entrenched and so much sort of um so much kind of leadership learning, for instance, you you know you get a sage up there who'll tell you stories, tell you anecdotes, you know. So And of the HBR will begin with an anecdote, typically. Yeah, that's right. with With, with a story, so parables and sermons. I think that you're spot on there with that.
2: No, I think I think uh, I think you've uncovered something quite important there. The actually, the it's not. I don't think it's necessarily the parable, you know, as the historical figure Jesus told it, but the there's a there's always a villain, isn't there, uh, John? The villain here is St. Paul. So I was yeah. recently in Thessalonica, and I've been in Corinth. I've been to the places where St. Paul actually stood. You know, in Ephesus. So these letters from the uh, Ephesians uh, and then also Corinthians, Thessalonians, having gone to those places, it's, very, it's quite interesting. The he was the person who turned these into powerful propaganda, almost like episodes of propaganda. You know, he was the Goebbels of the of Christianity. <laughs> That's horrible, but <laughs> you get my point. Hmm. He really used this technique to prophylize and spread the word of those religions in pre-literate times. But of course, they become captured in the New Testament and then get captured in print and in art. And you can walk into the Sistine Chapel or any church and see one of those parables or sermons there right in front of you. Go to any art gallery, you'll see dozens of them. In fact, Art literacy almost depends on a knowledge of those parables and sermons. So I I think your point is well made, and it's almost baked into the way we write now, you know, that opening anecdote, which is a sort of human story, and then before you get into the rational reason reason bit, right out of St. Paul, right out of the Gospels. Mm. Uh, And uh, very often you see that at conferences, when people give their little anecdote at the beginning, then get into the hardcore stuff, right out of the sermon. So I, th- I think you're absolutely right here. This uh, tradition has been going now for 2,000 years, and is quite a, the influence is obvious in many ways.:
0: We could spend a whole podcast on, on, on this particular religious yeah. leader. We will we, we'll, we'll return it to it, I think, in a later. Um, great minds on learning when we're hoping to, um, talk about some of the people who, you know, invented some new flavors like Calvinism, like Calvin and so on, and so look forward to that. But for now we move on. Muhammad Ibn Abdullah was an, an Arab religious, social and political leader and the founder of the world religion of Islam born in Mecca, the son of a tribal leader who died a few months before his birth. His mother died when he was six. So as an orphan brought up by his grandfather and uncle and slightly neglectfully, you you feel not much known about his youth, but he became a merchant. And it was at the age of 40, he had his transformative religious experience. And this is a a pattern we see in several religious leaders. In fact, there are striking similarities in the stories of Jesus and Muhammad. And, and felt thought of himself as a prophet, Jesus as a previous prophet. Uh, similarities like the praying in the wilderness, um, in Muhammad's case, a, in a cave. The angel Gabriel, um, well known to me as a, from a Catholic childhood, <laughs> plays a part in both stories. Um, it was the, the few early early followers that Muhammad has as well, building up to you know many thousands. The, the persecutions of those followers. One big difference is that Muhammad was a military leader. He united Arabia into a single Muslim polity. With the quran as well as his teachings and practices forming the basis of islamic religious belief and you know i said that the stories about the buddha were were, were beautiful and that the, the stories about muhammad um, and his military campaigns are are exciting and like an action movie and in a, in a whole different way really kind of engaging involving um I, I, I found it really interesting and had to tear myself away from the detail in, re, in researching that this mohammed himself had his fans in the west including rousseau napoleon and carlisle which many of those may seem a bit unlikely many less keen in recent decades with the rise of islamic fundamentalism which has um had a historic role and over the last few decades um which has led many to overlook the fact that islam just like christianity covers a very broad range of beliefs and in the west we tend very much to focus just on that that side of kind of jihad and so on. but If we can stay close to the prophet himself and his teachings, Donald, what does Muhammad contribute to our view of learning?
2: Yeah, I think your comparison with Jesus is quite interesting here because there's a really fundamental point that's terribly important here. And that Muhammad, unlike Jesus, is illiterate, but the Quran is literally, he Muhammad himself is illiterate, he is a mouthpiece for the Word of God. Muhammad is a prophet, but also a teacher, but actually is a teacher only because he speaks, he is a vehicle for the words, literally the Word of God, and the Qur'an is that. A translation of a Qur'an, for example, is not a Qur'an. The Qur'an is the original Arabic words themselves. It has an absolutism over the text. And unlike you I mean it's of comparable length, the uh, New Testament's a bit longer actually, but they if you compare it to the New Testament, for example, it isn't parable driven. It's much more of a full-blown sermon. Reading the Quran is a really, you know, it's it's really just telling you what you can and cannot do most of the time. It's very, very prescriptive. And that's the big difference I think between the two pedagogies here. Uh, the the Quran has a much more send the book in and Islam has a much more central role in education than, let's say, the New Testament or Bible has in uh, in Western education, especially since it's become more secular, obviously. Mm. But it's almost immediately turned into a book. Of course, the Quran in, in the 8th century, you know, about 100, uh, 100 odd years after Muhammad uh, dies, in the 750s or so on, you suddenly get the books that are spread, handwritten books, of course, across the whole of the, the Muslim empire. But the interesting thing about the this produces a golden age of Arabic culture, there's absolutely no doubt that this was progressive in the sense of producing an amazing, uh, you know, effervescence of science and literature and poetry and so on, the, those golden ages in Damascus, Baghdad and Cairo, uh, the three big groups of Islamic scholars in those very much based in those, in those three cities. But if we turn to the pedagogy, what can we learn about learning theory here? First of all, prayer is one of the five pillars of Islam, and I've worked a lot in the Middle East, in, uh, you know, in Qatar, I've traveled widely in Syria and Jordan, been to Egypt something like 15 times, I'm in Egypt this December, and uh, have witnessed this a lot. The importance of, if you're praying five times a day, then recitation becomes almost a form of space practice, as it were, mm-hmm. very effective for deeply embedding knowledge in the mind, having a deep knowledge of the Quran, Uh, and the Qur'an means to recite, uh, literally it means to recite. The text was originally meant to be read aloud and memorized, and memorizing a Qur'an is still uh, a very admirable thing in the Arab world, quite rightly. It's an immense task, but if you can achieve it, you, you... But let's break that down a little bit because you've got memorization. I mean, Islam literally means submission. You're submitting yourself to the word of God. But there are sutras within surahs, sorry, within the Quran, which are very specific on pedagogy. So there's the two in particular, and like that's 75 and 96. 75 is the one about writing. So it, it, it sorry, that's wrong. Surah is the one about reading, attentive reading, that's right. So you it specifically mentioned that memorizing the Quran. The, you know that that notion of reciting to remember it so that it's available in long-term memory as a guide to action in everyday life and I mean in everything in your dealings with your family politics whatever some would say that comes with a lack of critical thinking a lack of questioning almost a passive view of learning a almost didactic preachy type thing but that's the view that the Surah 75 says that that's why you recite and remember the Quran, and then there's another thing to do with writing. That Surah 96 that swings towards the importance that God taught man through the pen. Uh, you know the word pen is not quite the translation, but through writing. So going back to my original point, writing is incredibly important. Hence the rise of calligraphy. Walk into a mosque, you won't see you won't see images as you do in Western art, but you will see a lot of written text, Arabic text, because believers had to recite but also explain God taught man through the pen or writing. This actually held the Ottoman Empire back a little bit because printing didn't really take off in the Ottoman Empire because calligraphy or handwriting was regarded as sacred and printing a bit irreligious. So the Ottomans never really took to the printed word in the same way that it exploded in Central Europe. So that was what you know a, an interesting sort of restriction in a sense of literal the literal reading of the Quran. And then of course you have a, another really interesting thing that comes out of Islam is the rise of the madrasa and so the university of sorts really. And this yeah. goes back to the 9th century. So you have universities in the ninth century. We say universities arose in the 12th, 13th century in, in Italy and Central Europe. But there were madrasas in North Africa and the Middle East well before that, places of intense teaching with libraries, astronomical observatories, which you can still visit today, those mm-hmm. sort of proto-universities. So it's a rich tradition, but it's a very different pedagogic tradition from the one we're used to. And to be to be frank, I think there's some deleterious effects. So I remember a new guy was a professor in Cairo was telling me, you know, that if you were a student there, you literally had to buy the lectures from the professor uh, and you had to memorise them and recite them in the exam. It was as simple as that, <laughs> you know. You literally had to remember the paragraphs word for word, and that's how you would score highly. This would be weird in a, in a Western university, but I think that's not true now, but it was certainly true and probably is true in some places still. But Again, I would go back to this notion that the Christian university model that comes out of Bologna and other places has come and swept through in the the Arab world now. If you go to the Middle East and look at university now, it's based on the European or Prussian, German, American, Anglo-Saxon sort of model, really. Mm. Uh, That would be wrong. There are other big influences as well, people like Erasmus and Commodus and so on. But the dominance of the European model in higher education and schooling has spread around the world through colonialism as well. Of course, you have the British, French empires that take that schooling method and take it abroad, Spain and South America with Ignatius and Catholicism. So it's a complex thing, but it's everywhere. This is the lesson here, you know? These four figures have an immense causal influence, even now, on what kids do when they walk through that school gate, Uh, The assembly in the morning, you know? There are all sorts of little clues, the bells, uh, but, you know, it used to be the case when I went to school, certainly. You know, between periods, those mm-hmm. bouts, those sermons, direct teaching, lecterns, blackboards.
0: Oh. Okay, we're moving towards summing up now, I think. Um, and to close out, I, I just sort of draw out something that you've already said. You know, I don't want to re- re- repeat it, but you know, I do have a, a memory at my Catholic primary school of. Um, one Christmas, having to um, take part in the nativity play and do, and do a reading. And it was, I think, something from the Gospel of John. And it began, in the beginning was the word. Um, and I just find this absolutely puzzling thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. it, so it's all about the word. Which word? It's <laughs> spoke the word? What What word? Um, and, of course, I've, uh, I've become a writer, and it was fundamental to my life. And, and so I began to kind of understand what that's about. But it's also fundamental to religion it's, it's mm-hmm. also fundamental to learning if I'm right and there's an irony here if I'm right none of these religious leaders actually set pen to paper themselves some were at the cusp of right. writing coming in coming out of what were basically oral cultures and a lot of what they said was written down later they didn't necessarily set pen to paper themselves but sacred texts as you've said played a huge part in the spread of their, their ideas and in fact the history of writing and book production literacy libraries who said printing and beyond to uh, the the current forms of writing we have that is one in which history in which religion seems intimately bound up is this perhaps the most important legacy of religious leaders you think as far as our survey of 2500 years of learning theory is concerned their collective role in shaping written culture
2: yeah, I, 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 a Ken Robinson joke came to mind. There, he, he used to tell the story about his son in the nativity play. John, yeah. when he came, he, he saw his son coming along, and he was one of the wise kings. And he saw that his son had forgotten his lines, and he gets eventually, uh, uh, you know, leans forward into the crib and said, "Frank sends us." <laughs> <laughs> that was a great joke. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, being more serious for a moment, I think you. This is very true about the written words. So. You know, you still have the Greek tradition. We did a previous podcast on Socrates, Aristotle and Plato. So what Mm. happens is that, you know, Nietzsche famously said that, uh, you know, Christianity was Platonism for the masses. It brought metaphysics into, you know, this notion of two worlds, heaven in particular. But Mm. Aristotle was absorbed into the Catholic theology through Aquinas and Plato through St. Augustine the schism happens very early, but you get this massive focus in the scholastic period on the written word that becomes the mainstay of the university system. So theoretical critical thinking around the written word becomes the dominant form of education and still is today. So we have this massive focus on writing, the written word, papers, books, literature, to the detriment of all other forms of learning. Uh, By and large, vocational and practical learning by doing has been shoved to one side. I personally think this has been a disaster and the world's falling apart because of this. Uh, But nevertheless, that is what's happened. This is Theo's point about higher education being far too theoretical, self-absorbed, producing mountains of papers and articles, which very few people read, an area of mass production that is now failing us. And this may be very well, going back to what you just said, John, the result of this overemphasis on the written word. Interestingly, technology, I think, is coming around. And in a sense, a lot of young people are no longer reading books. they you know, other media have come along. Images, photography, uh, look at social media, video, of course, through YouTube, TikTok, whatever, Netflix. Let's not imagine that we adults are immune from this either. But the written word, in a sense, uh, the book is fading somewhat as a pedagogic device. And uh, so I think there are some, maybe for the first time, we've had the technology that frees us from what Nietzsche called the 2000 year aberration, <laughs> which was Christianity, obsession with the the word.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could even look at that in scientific, in scholarly communication, that um, it's harder and harder to sell historical monographs. Yeah, apparently I, I hear. You know the, the 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 monograph, the codex is it is looking a bit tired in all over the piece, I think.
2: I think that's right. Yeah, I think the, sort of the, the notion of the great books or the great book sort of curriculum, as it were, has gone out the window somewhat. Science, in a sense, has destroyed that. Uh, but nevertheless, go back to my original thesis. I think. Religion is almost like you know fat marbled into the meat. It is omnipresent and everywhere in very subtle forms, hmm. methods of teaching in the architecture of a lecture room or a classroom. Uh, the, you know, I think there are very very strong. It's not. These are not parallels. These are direct lineages. This is where this stuff came from. You know, I give lots of talks at conferences. And they often ask me to stand behind the lectern, which I refuse to do. I hate that, you know, hiding, holding on to a piece of wood as if I were some sort of Calvinist preacher. Uh, I want to communicate and talk directly to people. So I march to the side and go forward and look people in the eye and say what I have to say. Uh, But, you know, there are all sorts of things that make you conform to that old sermon, parable, preaching as teaching model, which uh, I don't think is entirely healthy a lot of the time. It's not to, I, I I do believe in direct instruction I'm okay with that but I think it sometimes dominates at the expense of other other forms of communication and other media of course
0: yeah slightly challenge that I mean, you know we had this thing called the the enlightenment where where people decided to stop fighting each other about different strains of christianity and to kind of set religion aside in a sense and um progressively treat it as an irrelevance. And then we had Darwin who, who we talked about in the podcast and so on and so on. Um, does re- religion really affect us nowadays as much as it did in the past? I mean, what you're talking about there is the persistence of forms within the, the current way that we do things. We see certain amounts of those are fading, but as we look forward to the future, um, how will religious religion affect us going forward, if at all?
2: Well, the Enlightenment, in a sense, most of the people during the Enlightenment, you know, if you look at people like John Locke and Rousseau, they believed in God, you know, they, they were religious beings, the exception possibly being David Hume. Uh, but it was certainly the case that, I, I think another thing came out of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment, in a sense, almost uh, softens, dampens down the, the sharp edges of religion, but still carries forward the Christian manifesto. But science comes along, and that's why our podcast about evolution is so important. I think a much bigger break is Darwin. Darwin, you know, and Nietzsche, you know, God is dead. We finally move into a truly secular world where science becomes incredibly important, becomes the new religion. And other movements that come out of the Enlightenment, let's say Freudianism, you know, the whole Freud psychoanalysis thing, uh, Marxism would be another one, utilitarian. A lot of those, you can sense, are almost Christian in intent, you know, they have that flavor to them that sense of progress, moral progress going forward. Whereas science is different, Darwin is different because it's a shocking halt to all of that. There is an alternative explanation for all this. And that's why I think uh, it's quite interesting the order we're doing these podcasts in, we did one on evolution Mm. that was perhaps revolutionary. Evolution is revolution. Uh, Nevertheless, the cultural inertia of these major religions, and remember these statistics, you're talking about Christianity still. Christianity is the largest uh, uh, religion on earth with about well over 30% of people who are stated Christians, who believe in another world and that inside our heads we have a soul. You know, I I don't believe that, uh, but 31 odd percent people do. Another quarter of the world is Islam, and they have a similar set of beliefs. Around the paradise, the afterlife, the existence of souls—fifty percent uh, Hinduism, another seven percent Buddhisms. The secular people—that that, that I would include myself in that one—irreligious people are only sixteen percent. So, out of the eight billion here, we secular people are a relatively small group. And who would deny if you go to the Middle East, Islam is fundamental throughout the whole curriculum; it, it's Im- embedded in everything. So we—we're not. Living in a secular or irreligious age—far from it. Only sixteen percent of the world's population actually get educated in a secular environment, purely secular environment. like that the rest of the world is very different. We sometimes forget that.
0: Well, unfortunately, here endeth the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Although it hasn't been a sermon, actually, you're right. It's been a dialogue. It's amen. Much more, but amen. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunately it's time to say amen. Um, and we have to go off and do some christmas shopping and arrange christmas parties and and so on um but thank you very much for this donald uh i i feel enlightened
2: <laughs> yeah. no that was fun actually you know it's uh, it's it's always great you know it makes you think far deeper. you do one of these podcasts and you have to take a, a much deeper dive than you ever imagined into some topics and it's always helpful when you're in dialogue like this i think i think socrates and the zen buddhists were probably right here that, that this form of dialogue you know, forces you to dig that a little bit deeper which is hopefully what we've managed to do today
1: Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer sound editors by Isaac Peacock social media by Jay Curtis graphics by David O'Connor the podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and we would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project Next time, Donald and John explore the extended mind in a special live recording from the Online Educa conference in Berlin. Don't miss it!